This episode is made possible by Partizan. You've all heard of BuzzFeed, right? BuzzFeed is a news and entertainment media company and is one of the biggest digital media companies in the world. In the age of social media, with Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, creating content that spreads is an extremely valuable asset. And BuzzFeed is by far one of the pioneers of mastering the art of creating content that goes viral. And it has fueled their success. At one point, around 2015, BuzzFeed was valued at around $1.5 billion. And to think that the brand was only founded in 2006. So how did BuzzFeed become so successful? What are they doing right? Well, to understand that, let's first go back to when the brand started. BuzzFeed was founded by Jonah Peretti and Jonah S. Johnson III in 2006. Jonah Peretti is the brother of actress-slash-comedian Chelsea Peretti, aka Gina Lanetti in the comedy series Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And you're gonna love her even more because she played a role in the foundation of BuzzFeed. You see, virality has always been something that Jonah Peretti was curious about. Back in 2001, when Facebook and YouTube weren't around yet, Peretti had a bit of an email squabble with Nike, the giant sports apparel brand. This email exchange with Nike would be one of the experiences that first triggers Jonah's mind into studying the science of virality, during a time when the word viral wasn't even really used yet. So here's what happened. Nike was running a service where you could put any word you want under the Nike swoosh. Customizing your shoes was a novel idea then, and so Peretti got excited. The thing is though, the word he wanted to put under the Nike swoosh was the word sweatshop. Take note that Peretti was not an activist. He didn't support Nike's actions, but he was in no way protesting. Well, he just wanted to see if they would actually print the word sweatshop under the Nike swoosh. Now, sweatshops are obviously a sensitive topic for Nike, since they are notorious for charging ridiculous prices for their shoes whilst at the same time having them produced by sweatshops in countries where labor is cheap. Nike had several words blacklisted in the customization of the shoe, mostly profanity, but somehow the word sweatshop went through. But then Nike responded to Peretti via email that sweatshop was an inappropriate slang. But then Peretti argued saying, no, it's not profanity, and continued to explain that in the dictionary, sweatshop just means a factory where workers toil around in unhealthy conditions. Nike rejected his request, and Peretti compiled the email exchange and forwarded it to his friends. This was during the time when email forwards were the closest thing you could get to today's share button. And the result of this email forward? Well, it ended up reaching millions of people, and it even ended up landing Peretti to being invited on the Today Show with Nike's head of global PR, and they were invited to talk about sweatshop labor. Best part is, Peretti knew little about the whole sweatshop labor by Nike. And to think that Peretti wasn't the best person to represent the attack on Nike's sweatshop issue, he shared that there definitely could have been a more qualified person to talk about this topic. And this is exactly what made him interested in the science of virality. How can a student with no context in the media reach millions of people about an issue he knows very little about? And so Jonah Peretti started making these little side projects with his sister Chelsea, who at that time was also working on her career. Just for fun, and to see how viral it can go, the siblings created something called the New York City Rejection Line. It was basically a number that you can give to someone who was hitting on you but you aren't particularly interested in, and so when that person calls this number, they'd be met with an automated rejection message. 
They also created a website called Black People Love Us, which was a simple website which featured two white people, Sally and Johnny, who had black friends and were super proud about it. Now, these are the types of content you'd see on meme pages or on Reddit, basically. They're hilarious and very shareable. And this may be a simple website, but it also ended up on Good Morning America, where they were invited to talk about race. These small projects were contributing factors because it gave Jonah Peretti more and more knowledge on virality. Because with each project, the timeline of how long it took for each to go viral became shorter. The Nike email exchange, it took three months. The New York City rejection line, it took two months. And the Black People Love Us took around two weeks. So even here, you can see that he was slowly decoding the formula on what type of content people love sharing and why they do it. And it was the perfect time to do so because social media was on the rise. Facebook and YouTube were entering the picture. Most importantly, these projects led Peretti to work at the Huffington Post. Peretti was introduced to Kenneth Lehrer, who was then looking for ways to use the internet to promote gun control. Since Peretti knew a lot about this field, one thing led to another and he was able to work with Lehrer on a couple of projects. This relationship led to Peretti to meet Ariana Huffington. Eventually, in 2005, Andrew Breitbart, Ariana Huffington, Kenneth Lehrer, and Jonah Peretti founded the Huffington Post. Though Peretti already had the creativity and expertise in creating sticky content, being a part of the founding team of the Huffington Post was where he learned how to run a company. But still, Peretti wanted to learn more about how media work, what makes people share ideas, and how content spreads. And so, while he was at the Huffington Post, he started BuzzFeed Labs as a side project. In the early days of BuzzFeed, a lot of experiments were being done. The one question that BuzzFeed Labs was trying to answer was, why do people share things? The whole company was built around discovering the best way something goes viral. One of the first things they made was something called BuzzBot. It was an instant messaging client that sent users links to popular content. They didn't have any writers then. They were simply curating viral content via a bot that crawled content from thousands of popular bloggers. Eventually, they transitioned to hiring writers and editors to write about the content that they gathered. BuzzFeed then started creating their own original content. This is what led to their explosive growth. BuzzFeed began creating quizzes and listicles. And the quizzes that BuzzFeed makes, well, these are very hard to say no to. In the advent of social media, these quizzes are a fun way to get to know your friends and for your friends to get to know you better. And it doesn't matter how silly the quizzes are. There's one called Which Frozen Character Are You? And there's another one titled, What City Should You Actually Live In? Which, believe it or not, was taken by 23 million people. And this leads us to answering the question, what makes BuzzFeed so successful? What are they doing right? BuzzFeed's strength is their understanding of their audience, primarily millennials. This is evident in the format of their content, especially with their so-called listicles that BuzzFeed has popularized. You see, Peretti pointed it out before that the primary audience of BuzzFeed are those who are bored at work and bored in line. These are just people who are looking to alleviate boredom, and so a quick escape from their routine helps a lot. This is how listicles have become extremely readable and shareable pieces. They're basically articles in list form. Lists such as 25 things only kids from the 90s would understand or 21 pictures that will restore your faith in humanity. These lists have paragraphs that have at most three lines, making them easy to consume. 
Peretti also applies the 80-20 rule when creating content. Instead of creating content that appeals to everyone, BuzzFeed hyper-focuses on a specific audience and then they niche down. Instead of using the approach of traditional media outlets of trying to please the general population, BuzzFeed's goal was to create high-quality content about something only a small group can relate to. With the rise of video and YouTube, BuzzFeed began investing in video content. In 2011, the company launched their YouTube channel, BuzzFeed Video. Their most popular video, If Disney Princesses Were Real, gained 76 million views. And speaking of niching down, BuzzFeed has applied this in creating video content for each group. For women interested in beauty and fashion, they launched the YouTube channel called As Is. And it has over 11 billion views. For gamers, they created a channel BuzzFeed Multiplayer in 2014. And it has over 5 billion views. In 2016, perhaps their most popular yet, they launched Tasty, BuzzFeed's own food network. Tasty popularized the two-minute long videos showing you the entire cooking process. Honestly, it's so hard not to like Tasty because you get to learn about the recipe and it's about food and everyone loves food. I mean, why do you think cooking shows are still around? And I'm sure BuzzFeed loves Tasty as much as we do, considering its massive earning potential. This leads us to our next question. How does BuzzFeed make money? Initially, BuzzFeed only made money through sponsored content. Since BuzzFeed was attracting hundreds of millions of website visitors every month, Naturally, brands were willing to pay to get in front of that audience. And to effectively do that, BuzzFeed does so with native advertising. Native advertising is seamlessly integrating sponsored content paid by brands along with content that BuzzFeed would normally create. The less you know that it's a paid ad, the more effective it is, and BuzzFeed executes this perfectly. There are reports that at one point, BuzzFeed charged around $20,000 for six articles. Brands like Coca-Cola, Virgin Mobile, and Bank of America pay BuzzFeed an upfront fee to create the content, and BuzzFeed charges the brand based on the number of views that the posts get. Sponsored content used to be BuzzFeed's main source of revenue, but now it only accounts to 30% of their earnings. BuzzFeed has since added another revenue stream that works hand-in-hand -hand with sponsored content, e-commerce. Developing their e-commerce revenue stream is one of BuzzFeed's priorities as it works to become profitable. As ad revenue becomes less profitable for most media brands, companies have been turning to affiliate links and e-commerce. Basically, how it works is that BuzzFeed grabs an affiliate link from sites like Amazon, and then they create a blog post or a video titled, If you don't have these 44 products, your kitchen is probably incomplete. And when people click on those links and purchase those items, BuzzFeed gets a commission. You've probably seen it or heard this on YouTube videos or podcasts where they give you a special code to get a percentage off your purchase. When people use that code, the brand gets a cut of the sales. News and media websites have been starting to get in on the affiliate business. Even the New York Times has acquired The Wirecutter, a website that reviews a lot of gadgets which of course makes use of affiliate links. But affiliate links are just the top of the iceberg. BuzzFeed takes this further. Their YouTube channel Tasty, which has gained quite a following, has partnered up with a 130-year-old seasoning brand McCormick. 
to launch tasty branded seasonings. This is just the start of their co-branded product business. They've since launched the tasty branded cookbooks and kitchenware at Walmart. It's actually a great relationship. Since BuzzFeed connects well with the younger audience, old brands like McCormick and Walmart tap into BuzzFeed's influence in order to draw in younger consumers. BuzzFeed, on the other hand, gets physical products developed and are able to draw in offline customers since these products would end up being distributed in traditional outlets like supermarkets. And of course, BuzzFeed gets a cut of the sales from selling these co-branded products. In 2016, BuzzFeed acquired Scroll to further beef up its product lab division. Because BuzzFeed has the data and understanding of their core audience, which are generally millennials, entrepreneurs and brands pay BuzzFeed a fee to help them discover products that this audience is looking for. I'm guessing that the quizzes that people have been answering act as questionnaires that feed BuzzFeed the info as to what their audience wants. Clients then pay BuzzFeed to design and to market the product through native ads. And BuzzFeed, they also get a cut of the sales. And they've actually already done this when they created the product Homesick Candles. And they've actually already done this when they created the brand Homesick Candles. In order to market this product, they featured it in articles like 28 products for people who miss Southern California, since Homesick Candles targets those who are feeling nostalgic. These are necessary moves for BuzzFeed considering that they are still working to become profitable. In January 2019, the company laid off around 200 employees, an almost 15% reduction in their workforce. This is due to them missing their revenue targets. BuzzFeed, along with other media publications, have been generally dependent on social media websites like Facebook for web traffic. But then, Facebook made a tweak in their algorithm, prioritizing posts from friends rather than brands and news outlets. And this move absolutely crushed a big chunk of web traffic for media brands, especially BuzzFeed, which is a social media-first company. But BuzzFeed wasn't the only one affected. Competitors such as Vox Media and Vice Media also went through a round of layoffs. And this is the reason why BuzzFeed has been working on other sources of revenue. Despite this, BuzzFeed is still an incredible company. The company claims that their global audience across all platforms is over 520 million people, which is massive. Whether they'll be able to weather the storm towards profitability, we'll have to see for ourselves. And so that's about it. Now you know about the origin story of BuzzFeed. If you prefer the video version of this episode, you can watch it on our YouTube channel and on our Facebook page. And if you enjoy this show, it would mean a lot if you can tell your friends about Brand Origins. We're also on Twitter, so you can say hi to us there as well. My name is Chris. I'll catch you again next time for another episode of Brand Origins.